Many financial crises, a stubbornly bare stock market, no breakthroughs on Social Security solvency, the debt ceiling debate dragging out. No wonder federal employees worry, along with everybody else. For one point of view, we turn to the vice president for policy at the National Association of Active and Retired Federal Employees, John Hatton. John, good to have you back in studio. Thank you for having me. And people are concerned. I actually had a reader write to me asking, well, are TSP funds insured? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Nobody's, uh, you know, investments are insured yet, at least in this country. But I guess people are thinking about the budget now being right. dissected and pulled apart. Tell us more. Well, the first opening salvo of the budget negotiations began with President Biden putting out his budget and some of the more detailed parts of it. So that's just kind of a request to Congress for what they want for agency spending. It includes legislative proposals that, of course, would need congressional assent for those. What I think we're looking at is what's the next back and forth going to be with Congress? Do House Republicans and Senate Republicans come back with something that looks to cut spending much more than Biden's budget does? Does that include cuts to federal benefits? Where do the budget negotiations go from there is kind of what we'll be monitoring in this process. Right. And that pay raise question is, I think, tantamount. I was talking to Senator Van Hollen, who, of course, is behind one of the backers of the FAIR Act. But if you dissect it, and this is something else a reader pointed out, that 8.7 percent, which is equally divided in the FAIR Act between base pay yeah. and locality pay, actually results in much less than an 8.7 percent raise because 4.5 percent of it is only your locality pay. So it's 4% of the locality pay, and the other is 4.7% of your base pay. And so it doesn't really come out to 8.7% mathematically. Well, I think it comes out – it depends on whether you get that average locality pay increase or not. And, and I think it is the 4.7% across the board and then 4.7 percentage point increase in locality pay. So some people might actually get more than that and some people may get less. Now, do I think that 8.7 percent is going to be enacted? No. Biden's budget included 5.2 percent for a pay raise. It said on average I would expect that to be 4.7 percent across the board and a 0.5 percent average on locality pay. Now, if Congress does nothing, that will go into effect. The president puts right. out his alternative pay plan in August. He puts an executive order out in December. If Congress is silent in appropriations, whether it's a CR or full-year appropriations, that presidential pay raise will go through. And so we'll see if part of those budget negotiations, though, include some negotiation over the pay raise. And for those that might be thinking of retiring or who are retired and they are still on the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program plans, there is the call now from OPM to look at Part D, which was never part of those plans because right. the federal plans were better than Medicare Part D in terms of the benefits there. Now that's been all sweetened up already by last year's legislation. Right. And so what are people thinking there? We've seen that call letter from OPM and that encourages plans to integrate a prescription drug plan through Part D through something called an employer group waiver plan, which is something that private sector employers do for their retirees to provide drug coverage. And so we will have to see in the actual contracts and in the plans that are offered for the 2024 open season what the actual details look like. 
but I think it's clear that it's going in this direction. I would expect a lot of plans to offer this add-on. Now, the way it will work for people is that the guidance says your coverage needs to be equal or better through that Medicare Part D add-on to your existing plan. The other thing, it's not going to have an additional premium. So people think, oh, am I going to have to go out and buy Part D? No, it'll just be integrated with your FBHB plan if you are a Medicare-eligible retiree. You will also have the option, according to OPM's guidance, potentially opt out of that because some people would face higher premiums due to their income. Right. So it's almost as if the supplemental plans long offered by different groups and AARP and so (laughs) forth, which put B and C together, would in effect just pull in D also. Yeah. So I think there may be two different ways the plans will go about it. One is that Medicare Advantage, where it combines A, B into kind of a C plan and D, or one that just adds on the Part D. So it gets very complicated. Again, we need to see the details of it. But with the legislative changes through the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a lot of benefits that accrue through Part D. One, Medicare is going to be negotiating prescription drug prices. There's going to be a limit on out-of-pocket expenses to $2,000. There's going to be limits on insulin costs. There's going to be limits on co-payments for catastrophic coverage. And there's going to be limits on increases in premium growth. Plus, Part D already had manufacturer drug discounts. So there's a lot of benefits that, by integrating with Part D, can accrue to those FEHB plans and retirees in it. So I think, overall, people will benefit from this new development. But again, we need to see the details. People need to be able to pay attention to what their options are in terms of what their costs may be based on their income, too. Right. And you need that calculator on the desk to really do your homework, right? I was going to say slide rule, but I don't think anyone still uses those anymore. Yeah. I think there'll be a lot of confusion and and a lot of decisions and a lot of personalization on this, too. So the best thing is never get sick and don't need drugs. (laughs) We're speaking with John Hatton. He's vice president of policy and programs at the National Association of Active and Retired Federal Employees, joining me here in studio. And there is a lot of plus up called for in the 2024 budget for OPM itself. Yeah. And OPM has been seen as a little bit of a backwater in terms of cleaning up the process of figuring out annuities so that you get it when you retire and not three or five or six months later and so on. What's your feeling about what OPM needs to do if they get all this money? Well, they've included in the budget and in their budget justification to Congress that they want to do an online retirement application that they've piloted and start to move towards a digital case management system. I think both of those things are really good ideas. Right now, a lot of cases come to OPM with errors, and so you can say, well, that's the agency's fault. They should have given the right information. But when you or I may go online and fill out an application, usually there's that little red asterisk, oh, you're missing this documentation, or you need to upload this file. So some basic processes that happen that we're used to don't really happen in the retirement process that make it slower and make it more difficult for OPM to process your cases. So it's not always their fault at that time. But if you make the entire process better, I think you can cut down on some of those delays. So in other words, the delays don't necessarily originate with OPM because if someone worked for six different agencies, and it's common for people to work several places over their careers, or they left government and came back, there's a lot of nitty-gritty, picky calculation you have to do down to pennies times periods of time according to the calculator for annuities. Yeah. So it's one, having the documentation from those different agencies. Sometimes if they weren't carried over from one agency to the next, they might be at the National Archives in St. Louis, and so they have to get that. 
OPM may have payroll data, but they don't have all the personnel file data. So they need to get that. And sometimes it is OPM's processes are very paper-based, so they can improve that too through the digital case management. So there are a lot of things. One of the common errors that happens is there's not enough showing that you had five years of continuous coverage for FEHB, and you need that to have it in retirement. So there's a gap there. OPM can't process your retirement because it doesn't know if you have health benefits. And also, with respect to OPM, and again, talking with Senator Van Hollen the other day, will OPM, and what's your sense, if it should, or what do people want OPM to say about some definitive policy on returning to the office? Or could the policy say, it's up to individual agencies, and then they could go about deciding what they want to do in D.C. and anywhere else in the country? Yeah, a lot of it has been agency by agency, and there was just a congressional oversight hearing on OPM where there was a lot of consternation about bringing employees back to work from the Republican side of the aisle. And so, you know, I think there'll be a lot of pressure from Republicans on that, at least in the House side, even as there are clear benefits to some telework with cost savings on space and some productivity. Uh, But I do think it needs to be a case-by-case basis, and I think it's been approached that way for the most part by agency. It seems like GSA needs to be a part of any of those discussions because if you're going to consolidate leased space – Right. That's a GSA thing. You're going to turn some of it over back to the landlords or whatever. I mean, if you're going to say we're going to do telework and accrue cost savings through space, you certainly need to incorporate GSA into that strategy. Or give everyone a really big, big cubicle for when they do come <laughs> and you just share. You get the left when you're in, you get the right-hand side when you're in. And I wanted to ask you about the Default Prevention Act. Yeah. And this is something that there's a bill by that name <clears> – <throat> goes back many, many years. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, right now we've hit the debt limit, and the Treasury is employing extraordinary measures to make sure the U.S. government doesn't default on payments on bonds, on Social Security benefits. The House Ways and Means Committee recently passed this Default Prevention Act, which would tier the priorities for payment in the case that those extraordinary measures are exhausted. So, tier one is bond payments, Social Security, Medicare. Tier two is DOD payments and Veterans Affairs payments. Tier three is everything else. So if you're a federal retiree hoping for your federal retirement benefits, well, you're third in line behind a lot of other things, including DOD contractors. So we'll see if that gets a vote on the House floor. I don't expect it to pass Congress, but that's the type of thing you need to look at if we actually hit default. Who's actually getting paid? And I think it would be a disaster to have so many people that are owed money from the government not getting payment. That to me is default. It's not just not paying bondholders. Right. Under that system, then, if the bondholders are first and DOD and VA second, then basically your annuity, your retirement benefit, your pay becomes the equivalent of a subordinated debenture. Yeah. And so that's not an approach that we support. (laughs) So hopefully uh, there'll be a deal on the budget and the debt limit to prevent that. John Hatton is vice president of policy and programs at the National Association of Active and Retired Federal Employees. As always, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, 
associate provost at Auburn University and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. 
I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, 
you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.